Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, when the economy falters, we often see financial fraud emerge. Today, we have a couple of stories about financial fraud and some advice about what you can do to prevent elder fraud in particular. Also on today's program, an Anglican bishop is returning from a voluntary leave of absence in the aftermath of a sex abuse and spiritual abuse scandal, and not everyone is happy about his return. We begin today with the resolution of a two-year-long dispute. Yeah, on Monday, uh, October 24th, a Scottish court ruled in favor of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association uh, in a lawsuit against an organization called Scottish Event Campus Limited, which is a venue that canceled an evangelistic event at the Hydro Arena in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, featuring Franklin Graham back in 2020 on the grounds that Franklin Graham's stated beliefs about human sexuality and Islam were not consistent with the company's beliefs. Sheriff John N. McCormick ruled that Scottish Event Campus Limited would have to pay over $111,000 for violating the UK's Equality Act. SEC, Scottish Event Campus, was one of seven UK venues that canceled uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association events, a part of a God Loves You tour, which was scheduled for January of 2020, after facing pressure from LGBTQ plus advocates. Multiple groups argued that Graham's public comments regarding LGBTQ plus issues and uh, the Muslim faith constituted dangerous hate speech. Graham, who is the son of legendary evangelist Billy Graham and president of BGEA, has often publicly rebuked LGBTQ plus values and has referred to the Muslim faith as wicked and evil. In his Monday ruling, though, McCormick said, briefly put, if it is correct that the event was evangelistic based on religion or philosophical belief, then it follows that the decision to cancel was a breach of the Equality Act 2010. SEC attorneys argue that the cancellation of the event came in light of concerns regarding protests and security. Yeah, but McCormick didn't buy that argument. He ruled that these concerns were not the sole reasons for the cancellation, even if they played any role. While the SEC's board did discuss security issues, they never raised these concerns when meeting with the Glasgow City Council. And th this is from McCormick's opinion. He wrote this. I heard no evidence to suggest that Franklin Graham had intended to pursue toxic or dangerous agenda at the event. On the contrary, it is not disputed that the event would have been an evangelical outreach event for up to 12,000 people. This is not to say that his opinions are not offensive to some, whether in Glasgow or elsewhere. However, the pursuer's right to engage a speaker at the evangelical event in furtherance of a religious or philosophical belief is protected by law. Graham said that he is grateful to God for this decision, viewing the ruling as a clear victory for freedom of speech and religion in the UK. 
Yeah, and Graham further stated that the lawsuit was not about receiving a settlement, but about the preservation of religious freedom in the United Kingdom. He also uh, called the decision a great encouragement for Christians and all people of faith across the UK and many other parts of the world. Our next story involves a pastor in Tyler, Texas. That pastor and his son have recently pleaded guilty to charges of stealing from an elderly couple in his congregation, which is Open Door Bible Church. Yeah, according to that plea agreement uh, reported in the Tyler Morning Telegraph in Tyler, Texas, 67-year-old Jerome Rocky Milton will serve six months in jail and 10 years on probation. And his son, Jerome Anthony Milton, age 27, was sentenced to two years of deferred adjudication. Now, that means he will be given a chance to provide restitution, to pay back the money. His ultimate sentencing will be based on his efforts and the success he has at making that restitution. The elder Milton was arrested in October 2021. He reached an agreement with prosecutors in August. Yeah, Milton was acting as power of attorney for an elderly couple, but he used their credit and ATM cards to pay for personal expenses, including making uh, car loan and repair payments uh, that he owed. Uh, Bank records showed that Milton withdrew almost $4,000 in cash from the couple's bank account. In fact, he left them with less than $1 in that bank account. The elder Milton was later also charged with money laundering and theft of property from a church and a nonprofit ministry, Pleasant Hill Missionary Baptist Church and East Texas Communities Foundation, respectively. Yeah, the charges for money laundering involve events that took place back in 2017, in which Milton was accused of taking somewhere between thirty dollars and $150,000 from the church and the foundation. He was also accused of transferring the proceeds from the theft between bank accounts, which can also result in wire fraud charges as well. In 2018, his previous church, Greater New Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Tyler, asked Milton to leave because he was handling finances and had other suspicious activity behavior on his part. That, again, according to court documents. Financial exploitation and fraud committed against elderly people is a significant problem in the United States. Well, that's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons, Natasha, that I wanted to, you know, cover this story, because not only does it involve, you know, faith, I mean, a pastor and a church member and and, uh, nonprofit organizations, but also because it does involve the elderly. According to research that that, um, uh, we did for this article, Kim Roberts, our reporter did for this article, it came from an organization called Comparatech, elder financial abuse in the United States results in losses of more than 100 billion dollars each year. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Unit reported that on average, elderly financial fraud involves a transfer of over $50,000. It also found that family members are most often the perpetrators of these crimes. This fraud in Texas was reported by a church member who thought things were suspicious. So if one of our listeners suspects elder fraud, what should they do? Well, you can do what this particular church member did. Uh, You know, if you see something, say something. You can call the local police. You can do so anonymously. Um, And uh, you can also check online for uh, resources. Just type in elder fraud and you will get an amazing array of resources that will come up in front of you on your computer screen. But let me in particular mention this. The Department of Justice, the AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons, and the American Banking Association 
all offer resources to detect and prevent elder fraud and exploitation. If you go to Kim Roberts' story on our website, you'll find links to the particular pages from the AARP, the DOJ, and the American Banking Association that will help you figure out what to do next. Let's look at one more story before the break, and it's another story of financial fraud. Yeah, it's a story of a New Orleans pastor. His name is Charles J. Southall III. He was charged initially uh, for unlawfully transferring $100,000 into his private accounts, but now he's pleaded guilty to laundering close to $900,000. According to court documents, Southall has served as the executive pastor of First Emmanuel Baptist Church uh, since around 1989 for almost 40 years. So how did this fraud work? Well, Southall solicited tithes and other donations from various members of the church and then diverted the money to his own personal use. For example, according to one victim, he requested a $10,000 gift from them, which he later deposited into his personal financial accounts and then used that money to pay individual expenses. First Emmanuel Baptist Church has maintained houses of worship in New Orleans and Baton Rouge and owned multiple parcels of property. The church also created housing ministry entities to provide low-income uh, New Orleans residents affordable housing. Yeah, that's right. And those related entities are also playing a role in this scam. Uh, for example, another victim claimed that South Hall solicited donations from them to various charitable purposes and the improvement of FEBC's New Orleans building. He then redirected approximately $106,000 of those donated funds, again, into personal accounts over which he exercised control and uh, paid unrelated private expenses. Southall, in total, rerouted about $500,000 of profit from selling um, property owned by the church into his private accounts without authorization. He and others also created what was called the Spirit of Excellence Academy to operate a charter school in New Orleans and later secured funding to create an affiliated school in Baton Rouge. And although Spirit of Excellence received funds in the form of grants and loans, the Baton Rouge School never even opened. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, the story of an Anglican bishop who is returning from a sabbatical despite ongoing concerns about spiritual abuse. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after the short break. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com.
Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, up next, the story we promised before the break is the story of a controversial and popular bishop in the Anglican Church of North America. He has decided to return from a voluntary leave of absence by the end of October, despite an ongoing investigation into spiritual abuse allegations. Yeah, the bishop's name is Stuart Ruck, and he's the bishop of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest, which includes the Chicago area. Uh, Ruck stepped away from leadership in July of 2021, a little over a year ago, after admitting that he had made regrettable errors in responding to allegations of sexual abuse by a lay minister in the diocese. I want to be clear, these are not uh, allegations of sexual abuse by Ruck himself, but just the way he handled them within the diocese. Uh, He and other leaders failed to act quickly on allegations against lay minister Mark Rivera, who is now currently facing trial for felony child sexual abuse, uh, according to a third-party review released in September. That report from the investigative firm Hush Blackwell found that church leaders defended Rivera and questioned the motives of the abuse survivors and also allowed a different volunteer who'd been fired as a teacher for inappropriate behavior with one of his students to continue in leadership. That gives me a few questions. Why wasn't Stuart Rock disciplined? Why was his leave of absence voluntary? And why wasn't he required to take a leave of absence? Yeah, those are all really good and really important questions, and I think that's not having clear answers to those questions is one of the things that's causing this controversy. But apparently, the rules of the Anglican Church, sometimes called the canons of the Church, prevent the province from removing a bishop. And I, I, for those of you that uh, care about this stuff, and I don't mean to get too much in the weeds, but the bishop is the head over a diocese, and the diocese, the many dioceses come together to make up a province. So, for example, there's a province of North America. The province cannot remove an individual bishop. Uh, it's a gap in canon law of the Anglican Church of North America that is getting some attention as a result of this situation. And you said earlier that not everyone is happy with his return. Yeah, that's right. I I do want to mention that Stuart Ruck is much loved by many in his diocese and uh, by those in the church where he was a pastor before becoming a bishop. That's the Church of the Resurrection in the Chicago area. That's a church that has a lot of influence uh, within the Anglican uh, world and also within the evangelical world generally because it's near Wheaton College uh, and the headquarters of Christianity Today and other influential evangelical ministries. So a lot of ministry leaders, uh, writers, and journalists, and others go to that church. But Audrey Lumen is with hashtag ACNA2, an organization that was uh, founded after the Me Too movement, and she's been speaking out about sexual and spiritual abuse within the Anglican Church of North America, and she told Ministry Watch, and I'm quoting directly here, personally, I find this announcement incredibly disappointing. It gives further evidence that the province as a whole either neglects the seriousness of the actions of one of their bishops and the clergy staff under him, or lacks the desperately needed structure to hold such leaders accountable and to ensure safety for all. Uh, As has been shown clearly through the investigative process, this was and remains not a matter simply in need of further education. 
Our next story involves a pastor at a church in Birmingham, Alabama, who has been charged with unlawful sexual conduct with a seven-year-old child. Yeah, it's a horrible story. Uh, the Reverend Kenneth Harold Daniel, 64 years old, is pastor of First Baptist Church of Chalkville, Alabama, is charged with facilitating solicitation of unlawful sexual conduct with a child, which is a felony, uh, for allegedly inappropriately touching a seven-year-old between uh, January of 2020 until just earlier this month. Um, AL.com, Alabama.com, reported this story originally. And he was taken into custody at the church. Yeah, First Baptist of Chalkville is a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, and the SBC, of course, is the nation's largest Protestant denomination, and it's currently under investigation by the Department of Justice after an independent report from uh, the investigative firm Guidepost Solutions found that SBC leaders have mistreated sexual abuse survivors and mishandled abuse cases for decades. Before moving on from this topic, we have another story of sexual abuse this week. Yeah, Christopher Darren Smith is a Georgia pastor who had been charged with multiple sex offenses involving the abuse of a minor, but he was found dead of a single gunshot wound to the head on Wednesday, October 19th. Smith died apparently by suicide during a recess in the court proceedings of the trial. Smith was arrested in 2019 following a five-hour standoff with police, wherein he barricaded himself inside of the home with a firearm, threatening to shoot himself, but he eventually surrendered peacefully. Yeah, following his arrest, Smith, who had served as pastor of Word of Truth Outreach Ministries in Columbus, Georgia, was charged with two counts of sodomy, four counts of child molestation, two misdemeanor charges for contributing to the delinquency of a minor, one felony count of possession of a firearm in the commission of a crime, and one uh, count of obstruction of justice, and one count of felony theft by receiving a firearm. The latter charges involving the firearm stemmed from Smith's standoff with police. Yeah, that's right. It was a, a sort of a whole a smorgasbord of charges here. And Smith, though, entered a not pl- guilty plea, and the trial had begun earlier uh, last week. Smith's legal team had sought a mistrial based on a witness sequestration issue, and with the judge denied that motion, Smith's attorneys requested a short break so that Smith could walk to his car to receive his glasses, and after Smith did not return, his body was discovered. Following the discovery of Smith's body, of course, the judge dismissed the jury to end that trial. And Natasha, uh, before we take a break here, I just want to mention that, you know, these stories are kind of horrible, and we don't even love reporting on them here, but but we do report on them because we think it's important for people to kind of look these stories in the eye and kind of realize that this stuff really is going on in the church and that... um, we should be taking steps uh, to prevent these from happening. I think a lot of times we're not willing uh, to take preventative steps because we just don't think that the cost of taking these preventative steps are worth it. But I think these stories indicate that the cost, the consequences of these kinds of stories are profound, affect people's lives, and last sometimes for generations. That's absolutely true. Well, Warren, let's take a quick break here. When we return our weekly round of ministry news... I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. 
Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? Well, what I have first is news that Calvin University, formerly Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has a new president. Huibi Bohr, um, who arrived on the Grand Rapids campus the last week in June, is the university's 12th president, and he succeeds Michael Leroy, who stepped down after a 10-year term. Now, Bohr is a Calvin University graduate himself, and he's lived 30 of his 48 years in Nigeria, where his parents, both of whom were born in the Netherlands, served as missionaries. He will lead the 146-year-old Liberal Arts University at a quite difficult point. Yeah, that's right. Over the past decade, the university's faculty roster and undergraduate admissions uh, have fallen fairly sharply. Right now, the enrollment at Calvin is about 3,200, but a decade ago, it was over 4,000, so that's a fairly significant loss over the last 10 years. Last year, it eliminated five majors and seven minors, including Chinese, Dutch, and German. And I should add that for a school with Dutch Reformed roots, the elimination of Dutch from the curriculum at Calvin, or at least the diminishment of Dutch, it was a real blow to the heritage and history of that school. And in addition, evangelical colleges across the country have been seeing a widening rift on social and political issues, and Calvin is no exception. Yeah, in fact, Calvin may even be at the forefront of some of these controversies. Uh, The university, which is solely owned by the Christian Reformed Church, is kind of walking a tightrope these days when it comes to sexual orientation. Um, This past summer, uh, the Christian Reformed Church of North America voted at its annual synod to codify its opposition to homosexual sex by elevating it to the status of confession or declaration of faith. And that means that the faculty at Calvin who have to sign a document saying that their beliefs align with the church's creeds and confessions are in a difficult spot. Some have asked for exceptions so that they don't have to affirm that marriage is between one man and one woman, for example. Uh, Calvin occupies, and on most issues, though, more of a center-left position, uh, at least among evangelical colleges. While it forbids premarital sex and defines marriage now as between one man and one woman, it does allow an LGBTQ support group on campus. And this past academic year, or actually I should say in the 2021 academic year, the school allowed a student who identifies as bisexual to be elected as student body president. Um, But it has taken some other stands that um, do tend to um, suggest that it's maybe moving back towards more traditional values. Earlier this year, for example, it severed ties with a campus-based research center after one of its employees married a same-sex partner. 
Boer said Calvin will continue to be hospitable to its LGBTQ students. He said, I don't want to be the president of an institution that isn't welcoming to everybody. Yeah, Bohr has a Ph.D. in history from Yale University and most recently worked as the head of Shell of Nigeria's Renewable Energy Division. He doesn't have a background in academic administration. And from the charity and philanthropy file, you've got the results of a new study. Yeah, although U.S. charitable donations continue to increase uh, this year, the second quarter in particular, they were up around 7%, the number of new donors uh, are is continuing to decline. The study is called the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, FEP, and uh, the giving data shows that um, while, again, giving is up, the number of donors is down. So fewer donors are giving more. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. It's also important to note that the year-over-year giving increase is less than the current rate of inflation. So it'll be interesting to see how the year ahead pans out for Christian ministries and nonprofits of all kinds. And after taking a couple of weeks off, we're back with a new ministry spotlight. Yeah, that's right. And in the spotlight this week is Partners International. It traces its roots back to 1943. And it's unusual in that its primary fundraising mechanism is what it calls a Harvest of Hope gift catalog. And it lists page after page of specific items or services that will be provided uh, to people in need for a specific financial contribution. So, for example, you can give enough to provide a goat or a pair of goats or maybe seeds or a plow, a cow, library books, perhaps even an entire library. Um, These are just a few of the many, many specific items and services that are in that catalog. Now, if you want to find out more about their unique approach to fundraising and also more about the ministry itself, just go to our website, ministrywatch.com, click on the bright red button at the top of the page, Ministry Watch 1000 database, and you'll find a profile for not only partners, but a thousand other Christian ministries there. Any final thoughts before we go? You'll find a profile for partners and more than a thousand other ministries at the Ministry Watch 1000 database. I also want to mention before we go a couple of quick items. I'll be in Newport Beach, California on November 15th, and I'll be hosting a dinner there for friends and supporters of Ministry Watch. It's absolutely free. If you live in the Los Angeles area, especially down in Orange County, I hope you'll join me. You should be getting an email invitation if you live in the OC, but if you do not get that invitation, just email me at WC at ministrywatch.com, and I'll make sure you get that invite. I also want to remind everybody that as we're approaching month end, we're a little bit behind in our fundraising this month. So if uh, you've been thinking about a gift to Ministry Watch, um, now would be a really great time. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. And I also want to add that the producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Rod Pitzer, Yanat Shimron, Ann Steig, Shannon Cuthrell, Bob Smetanya, Jessica Eteralde, Kim Roberts, and Dale Chamberlain. Special thanks to churchleaders.com for providing material for this week's podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.